Listen, <clears throat> last week we considered the effect of the Spirit's coming. This is a highly anticipated moment in the life of the disciples. It's a great moment in your life because it is the moment which the Holy Spirit's giving was fulfilled. Jesus had told his disciples that when he left, he would send the helper. We've talked about that in prior weeks. You may not recall that 600 years before Jesus was born, there was a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. And in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, this is what was said about the future coming of the Holy Spirit. 600-ish, a little less, but almost 600 years before Jesus was born. I will, this is God speaking. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle you with clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I'm going to give you a new heart and I will put my, a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. There's a lot packed into this promise, but we recognize how it's tied to our passage this morning. These people had been dispersed because of their sins, God had said, okay, you're going to be punished. And they were dispersed away from their homelands. And this is a promise in the midst of that, not only to bring them back, but to give to them a new heart and a new spirit, his spirit, to indwell that heart. In our passage last week, this long foretold promise was fulfilled. Ten days after Jesus ascended back into heaven... He sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And when the Spirit came, there was a, a loud noise, like the sound of a mighty rushing wind, so loud, in fact, that it caused all those who were nearby in the city to come out of their houses and try and figure out what in the world was going on. And they followed their ears to the sound where the noise was. And when they came, they observed something. What did they observe? Well, if we think back to the last couple of weeks, what we, what we know is they observed the disciples and those gathered with them in the upper room were there and there were tongues of fire representative of the Holy Spirit's coming upon them and they were speaking in all sorts of languages, languages that those that came to see observe, could understand because these people had come back to Jerusalem but were previously from other areas. They were some of those dispersed Hebrews that had been cast away from Jerusalem for punishment hundreds of years prior, but over, over the years in their lifetime, they had journeyed back to Jerusalem. And so they, they observe that the disciples have received the Holy Spirit, and they hear the disciples speaking the mighty deeds of God in words that they were able to comprehend. And they say, what is this? We can understand these guys in the language we grew up speaking. Okay, so that's 
It's a little bit about where we've been. This brings us to the verse that I want us to consider the implications of this morning. And I want to consider with you the reaction to the Spirit's arrival. So would you please stand as we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You can read it along in your own Bibles for better context, or it looks like they're both on the same screen. And Amelia, we could just leave that up if you'd like to. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your word, there is scarcely any passage that is predictable to our natural way of thinking. Lord, your word is always turning over, flipping the tables of our mind and acting in ways, teaching us to do things and say things that strike us as strange. It isn't the way that we would have chosen to do it. It's not the way we would have envisioned things going. It's not the person we would have chosen to have been. It's not the response that we would have had to a given situation. You are always amazing us with your word. Your word says that your name is wonderful, and as is your name, so are your ways. Your ways are wonderful. And so I ask that this morning you would cause us to shake off the coldness, the ambivalence of our hearts, and would you cause us to be amazed by you and by your word. I pray for each of us here that we would respond to your word, its predictions, its promises, its declarations, and would we respond with amazement and reverence. Some of us may not understand all the things that you say. Certainly all of us are perplexed at many points. And so I pray that you would allow each of us to press through our lack of understanding by faith in Christ, trusting you even when we don't understand everything. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Please be seated. A short passage, just two verses. This morning, as I said, we're going to analyze, we're going to consider, we're going to think about the response, the reactions of those that observe the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in our passage, these two verses, we see two distinctly different reactions to the same experience. Have you ever encountered such a thing? My boy, pretty much my whole family loves going to Cedar Point. And if you've ever gone to Cedar Point with friends, you know exactly what I mean, don't you? You've ridden a ride and you absolutely despise it or you absolutely love it and your friend does not share the same opinion. Or perhaps, this happens on occasion in my life, perhaps you hear something or see something that you think is absolutely hilarious. Jordan has a, one of the ways in which you know, he, he shows his kindness to me is researching and finding and distilling down the funniest YouTube videos and then sharing them with me. <laughs> and sometimes I take those videos that Jordan showed me that absolutely slay me. 
I'm just rolling on the ground laughing. And I show them to somebody else, and they look at me with horror and disgust. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> you think that's funny? Okay, we have these experiences in life. Sometimes we go through things, and what we take away from the experience is radically different than the person maybe even sitting next to you this morning. It's a reality of life. This happened in our passage this morning. The group of curious neighbors who came because of that loud noise, came trying to figure out what on earth is going on, they came and gathered at that spot where the disciples were, and they saw the tongues of fire descend, as we've already said, and they, they heard these disciples speaking in their own language, language not of the Hebrews, but of the dialects of tongue that they grew up speaking in different areas of the world. And there's two very, very, very different responses. I'd like to consider each one of them briefly. The first is that some, we are told, are what? Amazed and perplexed. And the other is that some were mocking. Some mocked and said, you're full of sweet wine. You're drunk. I want to talk first about being amazed and perplexed. Amazement and a lack of understanding, which is being perplexed. You, you don't really understand what's going on. You can't really wrap your mind around it. Often go hand in hand with each other. You think about it. This could be illustrated many ways, but you think about the stories you have probably read about when Europeans came to the Americas. They brought with them many things that to other Europeans were just pedestrian. They were just the tools that you used day to day. There was nothing special about them. But when they brought them over, those living here were absolutely amazed by them. They, they had no comprehension for what these things were or how they were made or what they did. They didn't understand them, therefore they were perplexed and fascinated all at the same time. They traded lots of things for the certain machines because they were so intrigued by them. They were amazed, but also perplexed. This is often the case with God. God is not like you. He does not have any of the limitations that you or I have. His thought process is perfect. His wisdom is infinite. And therefore, we can't relate to him very well. Do you recognize that? We are stunted in many respects. Our minds labor hard and stall out after periods of mental grinding. You ever feel that way? This past summer, I've spent some time on my tractor trying to get the property around. And when I'm pushing that tractor hard, sometimes the engine goes, and I've got to lay off the accelerator or whatever I'm trying to do to let it recover. How many of you have ever felt that way? Yeah, okay, thanks. In the back, I see you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> My friends are in the back. I've felt that way many times about many certain types of things. Pretty much every math class I felt that way about. Laboring, the mental gears grinding hard and nearly stalling out. This is us in many respects. It should not surprise us that in relation to God, what he does is often amazing and perplexing at the same time. 
He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far, so far much higher are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. That's God saying what I've just said to you, in case you didn't believe me or your past experience. God said it to you. And what I want to say at this point is that it is a great fallacy. Many people fall into a fallacy, into an error, into a lie right at this point. And I don't want you to fall into it. Many people fall into the fallacy that we need to understand God before we can trust him or before we can obey him. Can you imagine seeking to have your toddler have a firm grasp on all of your parental motivations before you as a father or mother required anything of them? I'm not saying here that we don't understand anything of God. Of course, he's given us his word because he desires to be known. But many people won't have him until they have turned him over in their hands and inspected every part. And of course, that will never happen. It's the fallacy that of believing that we must understand everything about God and his ways that keeps many men and women from embracing him. They aren't willing to trust anything that they don't completely understand, and yet their lack of understanding innately keeps them from understanding God because we're fallible, we're finite, we aren't that smart. And so it's a circular problem that only humility can break. It's the pride of man that makes him say, I won't submit to anything that I cannot rationally conceive of in my mind and agree with. And I don't want any of us to fall into this great fallacy and into this quagmire and into this tar pit of pride that is so hard and so few actually ever climb out of. There are many in Scripture who are amazed by God and who don't understand Him at the same time. It's all over. It was Abraham when the angel of the Lord came and said that his old wife, they were both old. They were both aged. That's what the word the Bible uses. They were going to have a son. Abraham is amazed by it. There's nothing he wants more, and yet he's deeply perplexed at how in the world this is going to happen. King Nebuchadnezzar, we're told that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace because they refuse to bow down to him, he looked into the furnace and he said, are there not three men that we throw it, threw into the furnace? And his guards say, yeah. He said, I'm perplexed. It seems as if there are four in the furnace. And the men say, certainly, O king. They are amazed at what God has done. They can't understand how that happened. Now listen, it's all over. Mary, think about Mary when, when the angel came to Mary. Mary said, the angel came and said, you are greatly favored of the Lord. You're going to have a son by the Holy Spirit. And she said, how is this so? She doesn't understand it. She's amazed and perplexed. And of course, this is the reality of Jesus' life, isn't it? How many times you do a word study on the word amazed? How many times throughout the Gospels are we told that Jesus healed or Jesus said and the peoples were amazed at his teaching? There was no one who spoke with his sort of authority. They, don't under, they also don't understand it. They're amazed by it, but they can't. Even the disciples don't understand it. You think, how many times did Jesus say, have you been with me so long and yet you do not understand? 
The first group of people in our passage hear what's taking place on the day of Pentecost, and they are amazed and perplexed. They don't understand what's going on or what the purpose is. But here's the thing. Listen, they are eager to hear more. They're eager. They are interested in the purpose. This initial miracle of speaking in languages that they can recollect from their childhood days is an initial miracle that has primed the pump of their hearts so that when the gospel is preached by Peter, and next week probably we're going to get to that passage, many of them respond by putting their faith and their trust in Jesus as Lord. But this is only one of the two responses that we read in our verses this morning. The second group of people are those that mock. They share a certain thing with the first group, but the end reaction is quite different. Those who mock don't understand anything more than the first group does. In the way that they are, that's the way in which they are the same. But of course, the mockers would never admit that. Rather than merely being amazed and perplexed, what do they do? What do the mockers do? Well, they mock, but what does that indicate? It indicates that they were men that sat in judgment on what they had just experienced. Rather than just being amazed or perplexed, they sit in judgment. They render their judgments on the matter. But the truth is that they were blind, probably more blind than the initial group that was amazed and just simply admitted, we have no idea what's going on, but this is amazing. Their pride doesn't allow them to see their blindness. This is always the case. We don't see our blindness so often because of our pride. So it takes those that love us to shine the light at at those things that we can't see ourselves. These men were proud, and they were blind. These are the two reactions that were given to the Spirit's power being poured out to to His arrival on the day of Pentecost. They are not arbitrary, these two reactions that we've just been talking about. They are not arbitrary. They are instructive. All men, here's, here's, I want you to listen. All men will respond in one of these two ways to the work of God. There's a reason that these two groups responded in the way they, they did. It's to instruct us. These are, these are the typical reactions to the work of God in the world. How are people going to respond to you? Well, you see it right here. Either they will be amazed. They won't know it all. They'll have questions. They may not fully believe, but they're amazed. They want to know. Or they will mock. They will sit in judgment on what they've heard. They will scorn what they've heard. They will either wonder at God or sit in judgment on him. These reactions serve as the two type of responses that will be had when the truth of Jesus is taught and shared. Those who don't understand God's word and yet respond with amazement and a desire to know more, are not far from the kingdom of God. They're not far from grasping hold of salvation in Christ. And what I want to say is, right now, there are some here who are in the same spot as these Hebrews were on the day of Pentecost. You're observing 
and hearing things that are completely new and foreign to you, things that don't make sense to your way of thinking. And yet at the same time, you have this itch in your mind that you want to know more. You desire to understand the things that you don't know right now. Perhaps you aren't, aren't totally convinced yet. Maybe you're still wrestling with what you're to believe. And while I urge you not to delay in surrendering yourself, your heart, your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, while I do not hesitate to call you to trust and obey in the work of Jesus right now for salvation, I also say that as a church family, we are happy to have those that are seeking God. It's actually very important that our church bear witness in such a way that we always have those that are wondering and seeking God. We are happy to have those that don't yet understand but are genuinely seeking and want to know more. And I'm thankful that God is using our church to grow those that didn't grow up in a church or who may not know much about the Bible. Earnest seekers of God are never to be looked down upon by us, nor are they to be pushed away. God is gracious and happy to have anyone who earnestly seeks him. He is patient. He is willing to be sought. He is willing to reveal himself to those that seek him. This is said numerous times in the Bible. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It speaks to his desire to be found and the urgency of such a matter. He that seeks finds, and he that knocks, it shall be opened to him. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. All of these verses speaking to how much God desires you and loves for you to seek him. And I speak to those of you who are seeking God but who have not laid hold of him yet. If you are amazed and perplexed at the truth of Jesus, then you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I call on you to earnestly continue to seek him, and you will find him. You may not find him instantly, but you will find him ultimately. Delays from God are not denials. He may cause you to, to endure certain things in your seeking of him, like Christian in the story of Pilgrim's Progress. But delays on that journey are not denials of him. He has not shut you out. He's calling you to seek him. Press on in seeking God. Though none of us will ever come to a full understanding of him, of why he has done what he's done for us, why he sent his son to die for us, for love. But yeah, but why? Well, for love. Our minds can't comprehend it. A love so vast and deep. Why he would care about you who have rejected him and sinned against him. Though you will never understand fully why he has done what he has done. A relationship with God is one that is not based on empirical evidence and reason, though there are plenty of both. It is rooted and built upon faith in Christ. As you trust Jesus, you won't be amazed less. You'll be amazed more. All of his kindness to you, all of his goodness, all of his provisions, all of his patience, all of his wisdom, 
Press on in seeking God. I call on all of you, press on in seeking God. Are you amazed by him? Do you marvel at the things he's done in your life? Press on in seeking God. Do you have questions about him? Do you have questions that you'd like to ask him yourself? Press on in seeking God. Open his word. Seek him where he may be found. Not in YouTube tutorials talking about him. Go to the source. Seek him where he may be found. The other response of the crowd is not nearly as hopeful as those that are amazed and perplexed. Mockers will not find the truth. Pride blinds them to the gateway of it. It's the sort of thing we see addressed in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, David, King David's writing, and he says the nations are in an uproar and the, the peoples are devising a vain thing. The kings take their stand against God. They, have, they sit in judgment on God and they all line up and <laughs> we're going to show him. We're going to cast off the, thing, the fetters on our feet that he's... We're going to cast off his law. We're going to cast off the things he's told us to do. <laughs> and God says... He who sits in the heavens, I laugh. I scoff at you. That's his reaction to the mockers, those that sit in judgment on him. He mocks them to scorn. That's what it says. It's sort of a reversal, if you will. Those who sit in judgment on God and on his word will one day be cast from their judgment seats, the judgment seats of their own mind, and find themselves on his judgment stand of eternity. And there, many of them will still be proud. What are we told? Especially the religious will insist that there must be some sort of mistake. That they were better than what God recollects. Don't they remember when they did this or they did that? Don't they remember that they wrote that check to that organization back in 1992? Don't they, doesn't he remember that they attended church for most of their lives? And yet, to those that are proud and have not bent their knee to Christ as Savior and as Lord, who haven't accepted Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for them, he will say, he will render to them the due penalty of their sins. And we are told in Scripture that that is casting them into the lake of fire where Jesus says there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Even in hearing Jesus' words about hell, some of you are tempted to be dismissive. There is a voice in your mind that says, I don't believe in a God that, that would be that small. I, don't, I, I believe in a God of love. The Bible says God is love. That's true. I believe in that. Or God knows my heart. I'm certain that he wouldn't treat me like that. I deserve better. Or I've had a hard life. He'll certainly understand the things I've gone through. Or, I'll think about all these things, but at a later point. I have time. There are things that I want to accomplish before I deal with Christ. All of these internal voices, all of these statements that our minds can be filled with, are coming from the voice of the mocker. The man who hears what God says, and yet decides he's going to sit in judgment on it. Just as a child who flagrantly, I, I, I want to, I, I think maybe some of us are, I want to make sure we all understand the connection between mockery and sitting in judgment on God. Because you may say, well, I've never mocked God, 
you know? That's the kind of stuff that, you know, Marilyn Manson does or some other. You know, I've never mocked him. Well, listen, just as a child who flagrantly disobeys their parents' instruction mocks that parent even while they don't use words, the one who knows what God has said but disagrees and who thinks that they know better mock God. You recognize that. If, if I told my son or daughter that they are to do this or that and they look at me in the eye and, and absolutely disobey what I've just said, it's not just disobedience. They've, they've sort of mocked my authority, right? And so they can, you can mock without words. You can mock with the actions of your life. You can sit in judgment on God quite quietly. To be told the truth and to reject it is not only to rebel, but it is to taunt your maker. To have Jesus, the Son of God, lay down his life for you and yet reject his kindness is to scorn him. In your rejection of him, you are no different than the soldiers that made sport of Christ by shoving that crown of thorns on his head and stripping him and beating him and then asking him, prophesy, who was it that struck you? Do not live as a mocker. Do not sit in judgment on God's word. Are you allowed to be perplexed by him? Yeah. Are you allowed to not understand everything? Absolutely, I hope so. Are you allowed to wrestle with truth as you seek to understand more? Yes. But whatever you do, do not attempt to mock God. Do not mock God. Scripture says that God will not be mocked. He will not tolerate it. And so we see that there are these two responses, amazement and mocking, to this great miracle at Pentecost. Now, with the remaining time that we have, I want to consider what the mockers were mocking. We've established that they were sitting in judgment on God, but what were the mockers reacting to? What were they reacting to? We might think that they were reacting to the scene in general. You think about it. There's a, you know, 120 or 140 people up in that upper room, we were told, talking in different languages in the middle of Jerusalem. And with all of them talking at the same time, there had to be some degree of cacophony, some loud, you know, ever hear like, you know, you ever do Korean prayer where, you know, everybody gathers and then everybody starts praying at the same time and it just sounds like a big noise. You can't make out what's going on. I see Silas smiling back there. back. <laughs> oh, okay. joy. Yeah. I often feel that way when I've, I have six kids. When we sit at the table and they're all talking. You ever experienced something like that? Yeah. But was the talking in various language what, what caused the mocking? Was the talking in various languages what caused the ridicule, the scorn? Is speaking a different language in itself to be considered a stupid thing? If I, uh, we have a young woman from South Korea here, Joy. If I was to speak to Joy in Korean, or if I was to speak in Afrikaans to, to Bronwyn, or if I was to do sign language to some of those here that speak with sign, would it be... A cause, would you have cause to mock me? Is that something that would res, you should respond to by saying, he's drunk? No, not at all. Not at all. There isn't anything funny about that. 
Speaking in various languages, something a drunk person would do? No. It wasn't the miracle that they were mocking. And this is the point that I, I want us to all to grab a hold of firmly this morning. So if it wasn't the miracle of speaking in various languages, what was it that caused the mockery? If it was not the medium speaking in a foreign language, it had to have been. It had to have been the message. What was being said and what was said. We're told that the crowd had gathered and exclaimed, we hear them in our own tongues speaking what? Speaking the mighty deeds of God. What mighty deeds would those have been? We're trying to figure this out here, folks. What mighty deeds would have they would given them an occasion to mock? Would it have been the recounting of their deliverance from Egypt? Would it have been the, the, the retelling of how God called Abraham? Would it have been talk of how the law was given? Would it have been talk of how God gave them directions, step-by-step directions, better than even the Legos magazine packets that you get for how to build the temple, the tabernacle? Is that what they were talking about? No. None of these things would have solicited the sort of reaction that it did from the Hebrews. These were all central truths of the Hebrew religion that they cherished. They were part of their heritage. These were the deeds of God that they loved. Whatever the mighty deeds of God were that were spoken, they were such that caused the Jews that were there to mock and to say, you're drunk. You're drunk. So what sort of deeds, mighty deeds, would have those been? Was it not the mighty deeds of Jesus that were being scorned? What was being proclaimed was nothing less than the message that that medium, the foreign languages, represented. What was being represented in people speaking various sorts of languages? Well, what I mean by this is that the reason the Holy Spirit caused the disciples to speak in foreign languages when the Hebrew would have worked just as well, this reason was to signify that the message of Jesus Christ's salvation was not going to be confined to geographical boundary lines, the boundary lines of Israel any longer. It wasn't going to be confined. The work of Jesus is not confined to the Hebrew language. Now, the good news, that which you hear of Christ, would be declared in every language under heaven. All people would hear about Jesus' love for them and have the opportunity to respond. No longer would language serve as a dividing wall. God's great love for the world and Jesus' life and death and resurrection to redeem and save the world were the mighty deeds that were declared. These are the truths that were such an offense to some of those listening that it caused them to mock and to accuse. What do we learn from this observation? What do we learn from the fact that they were mocking the mighty deeds of God as it relates to the work of Jesus Christ, not as it relates to all the things that the Hebrews already loved. What do we learn? 
The first thing that we learn is that Jesus was sincere when he said that a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you keep my word, if they keep my word, rather, they will keep yours also. And he said, I've spoken these things so that you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus knew that his disciples would be mocked. He was mocked. He was reviled. Should we attain a better lot than Jesus? Should we have it better than him? It wasn't for the supernatural miracle that the disciples were ridiculed. It was the message that was conveyed in that miracle. It was for speaking the mighty deeds of God that they were mocked. It was for proclaiming the truth about what he has done for us. That's why they were being mocked. And I think that if we're honest, we would like to have it the other way around. It would be more convenient for us if the mocking were a result of the miracle, not the message that they spoke. After all, when was the last time you started speaking in a foreign language that you had never studied before? But if mocking as a result of the message which was proclaimed then mockery comes a lot closer to you, doesn't it? Or at least it should. And there will be mocking and scorn when the mighty deeds of God are proclaimed. I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves when we're confronted with this passage is, are we willing to endure that? See, the mockery wasn't a result of just some supernatural thing that happened in the apostles' life. It was a result of those hearing the word of God about Christ and responding to it. Are you willing to endure that? Later in Peter's life, he's going to write a letter to the churches called First Peter. And in his book, he's going to say, it's actually Second Peter, but in this book, he's going to say, know this, first of all, that in the last days, there will be mockers that will come with their mocking, following after their own desires and lusts. From the beginning of Peter's apostolic ministry, his ministry after Jesus ascended, he experienced mockers. He felt the sting of their words and insults. He doesn't want us to be sucker punched by them. He wants us to anticipate them. He doesn't want us to have the wind knock out of us. Mockers are going to mock, but don't let them knock you off your course. Don't let their words shame you into keeping silent when the mighty deeds of God are all around you. Don't live in fear of scorn. Jesus didn't. You have nothing to be ashamed of. We aren't representing ourselves. We're declaring the mighty deeds of God. That's what he calls us to do. There are plenty of things that I would have to be ashamed of if I were declaring things about myself. But that we aren't. We're declaring the mighty deeds of God. His ways are perfect. So again this week, after several weeks of asking you this question, I, I keep seeking to chisel away at it in your mind, do you truly desire an outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power in your life? Do you really want to see him work with power in and through you to affect you, to affect those around you? And if you say yes, then what I say is you need to speak the mighty deeds of God. Speak about the power and the glory of Jesus to other people. Speak it to yourself. Share it with them. Why he's so great. 
why you love him so much. Share what he's accomplished in your life. Share how he's changed you. Share what he's done for you and what he offers, offered you and what he offers to others. Some of you pray for your children. You want to see God's work in them, but you don't speak. Speak the mighty deeds of God to your children. Is this not given us as an example? You must speak. You say that you want to be a light. Of course, our actions are part of this, but if you're content letting your actions shine unaccompanied by your speech, then you are content with an attenuated light, a diminished, diluted light, a light that's half obscured by a, by a basket that you've set over it. You aren't that interested in being used by the Spirit in a powerful way if you don't speak. Our lives must be backed up by our words, or what we teach is hypocrisy. But our words, our speech, must lead our lives. It is our words that have power. That's what the Scripture teaches. Ask any of the wicked dictators that lived in the last century, and they will testify to the importance and the power of our speech, our words. They had it down. They mastered their speech. They utilized it to their advantage every day. Hitler declared the mighty deeds of the Nazi party over loudspeakers for all to hear throughout the time of his regime. He knew the power of words. And yet you're not convinced of the power of declaring the mighty deeds of God. You're slow to speak of God when Hitler wasn't slow to speak of himself. Obviously, I understand that all of life is a testimony, but I'm also sort of sick of hearing of it. It's been this, the Christian mantra for decades that our lives are the testimony, our lives are what speak. I think we understand that they speak, but it's been a mantra that all of our life is our testimony, and it's been used sort of silently as leverage against actually speaking about Christ, actually telling others about what he's done for you. And if you look at the church today, it really hasn't worked, has it? I remember years ago, the presbytery that we used to be a part of had a big argument within the presbytery about how much money we should spend to bring a famous Japanese abstract artist to Oberlin College. And it was a big deal. How much are we going to spend? There were all sorts of people wanting to do it, and there were some that were against it. They wanted to spend large sums of money under the idea that bringing in this man with his art would be a radical evangelical tool, that it was going to be a great witness, and his art set up in this gallery, it's going to do great things for the kingdom, we need to throw lots of money at it. The problem is, is that for as beautiful as art might be, it cannot declare absolute truth like your words do. It's impossible. Art cannot hold the weight of absolute truth. Only words can do that. We've been given the word as our guide. And we've been given the spirit to guide us in all truth so that we might speak. This really isn't, shouldn't be a surprise to you. There's no way that we can actually read the Bible, that we can read the Psalms, that we can read the, gospel, the Acts, that we can read the Gospels, the Good News, And not come away understanding that God has given you the Holy Spirit so that you might live and declare the mighty deeds of what he's done. Isn't that just so much of what the Bible is? 
You say that you want to see the Holy Spirit work with power. So what keeps you? Is it not your lack of declaring the mighty deeds of God? How many words are spilled over your hobbies, your sports, your own greatness? How few are used to declare the mighty deeds of God? And why? Well, it's simple. It's really simple. We don't want to be mocked. Isn't that the truth of the matter? We want the power without the pain. We want the cross without the cross. We want Christianity that that is powerful, but that doesn't receive any of the mockery or the scorn that Jesus and his apostles did. And yet we see in our passage and throughout the New Testament that when the Spirit is working, we see this actually all throughout history, when the Holy Spirit works with the greatest power, it's often accompanied by the greatest times of persecution, either in the midst of it or on one of the ends. That's just what we see. Do you desire an outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power in your life? It will be accompanied with those that mock. But living life fixated on that reality is like looking at a glass that's half full. Remember the other reaction. We've talked a lot about mocking. Now think back to the other reaction. The other group of people were amazed and perplexed at what was said. They heard the words that were spoken and responded with amazement and perplexity. It was strange yet wonderful to them. And what we will see is those words were used as the first seeds that were sown to gather up a magnificent harvest to the Lord. And we're going to see that in the next coming weeks. May God bless you in the same way as he did these people as you declare the same message. May we be a people that are committed to knowing the word of God and to declaring the word of God. Let's pray.